All right, let's jump into our last Sunday in this series. It's been amazing, the feedback I've been getting about this series, about the way God has been encouraging, speaking to, challenging, and offending you. So praise God. <laughs> praise God for his goodness. For those of you visiting or watching online today, you decided to stay home and avoid the uh, Memorial Day race traffic. I don't blame you, um, but we want to welcome you here online as well. And I just want to bring you up to speed real quick. So we've been living in the book of Exodus and really the book of Numbers. It's kind of the, where one stops, the other one begins. And it's this 40-year journey of the Israelites leaving Egypt and into the promised land. This whole journey begins with a man named Joseph. We find his story at the end of Genesis. And uh, you may know Joseph, if you aren't familiar with the biblical story, you may know him as the guy with the technicolor dream coat. That Joseph... Here's a great little quote that sets up Joseph's story. And what I want you to notice, I've been saying this all along, is that this story is our story. So Joseph's story is kind of a mirror image to Israel, and Israel's story is a mirror image to us. Here we go, great quote. In a prison filled with thieves and murderers, serving life sentences or awaiting execution, there was one innocent man. He's a slave, imprisoned on false rape charges alleged by his former boss's wife. When she tried to seduce him, he ran. So she sentenced him with a lie. But this was not the first betrayal that had cost him his freedom. He had grown up in a household where he was favored by a doting father and hated by jealous older brothers. Occasionally, he dreamed that he would one day rule over his brothers. Infuriated by his delusions of grandeur and their father's favoritism, his brothers plotted a terrible betrayal. They beat him up, threw him into a hole in the ground, and eventually sold him into slavery to the man whose adulterous wife would betray him again. His name was Joseph, and his story is told in the book of Genesis. Fast forward from Joseph's story, this is how the Israelites end up in Egypt. So because God leads Joseph there and a great famine comes and Joseph saves all of Egypt and his own people, the mercy of God, the Israelites are in Egypt for over 400 years and in that span of time, they become slaves. And they cry out to God, help us, free us from this slavery. And God shows up through a man named Moses and frees them. Through these plagues, he shames the false gods of Egypt. He puts Pharaoh, finally makes him subdue and he releases these Israelites to Moses and to God. And God leads them on a journey. Now, let me show you the map of the journey. We looked at a similar one. There's a lot of these online you can find, and some of us are guessing about exactly where some of these things took place, but if you imagine, here they are, somewhere in this land of Goshen in Egypt, and they start down here. You can kind of see on this map, see how it's real dark here? That's because it's green and lush, and then they kind of come up here, across the Red Sea, and they come all the way down here through a desert. You can kind of see these bumps here. It's kind of hard to see up there, but if you could see what I could see, then you would see all these little tiny bumps, which means it's very mountainous. And they kind of come up here to the deserts of Paran, and they end up wandering around for roughly 40 years, so they finally make their way up to the promised land. In this journey that God led them on, you'll see there's a much easier, faster, more beautiful green way to get there. I've been jokingly calling this Highway 1 in California. That's exactly what it would have been like. But this was hard and painful and difficult over and over and over again. This journey should have taken somewhere around 16 months to two years. It ended up taking 40 plus years. And the reason is because they never learned the, the lessons they were intended to learn. So God kept them in here wandering around in order to do something in Israel that needed to be done. Which brings us to this question. 
Have we learned the lessons of the desert? And are we ready to enter the promised land? Let's just make it about Israel. (laughs) What I've seen in my life over and over and over again is that God keeps leading me back to the same thing until I knock it out. I remember this kind of coming across this realization when I was around 17 years old. I remember being at a week of camp teaching some middle school students and was telling them this. I feel like God's not ever going to be able to do the next major thing in me until I finally get this one knocked out. And I don't know if that's true because that's kind of putting God in a box, but what I had seen already at 17 and what I still see at 40 is God keeps bringing me back to the same desert, trying to get me to learn certain lessons that in some ways my hard heart or maybe my deceived mind won't always let me learn. Anybody understand what I'm talking about now? Amen. You're a little too passionate about that, all right? I'm just kidding. But it's true. I love the way Jeff Mannion, this is where I got this whole concept of the series from the book, The Land Between. Great book. Highly recommend it. He says this, as we journey through the desert, we enter a harsh climate that can include emotional fatigue, withering delays, physical pain, and financial shortage. What crop could possibly thrive under these conditions? What good could possibly come from this region? Returning to the desert wanderings of the Israelites, we will see that the land between is the perfect climate for transformational growth. In fact, no other soil in the world has the potential for producing such lasting, life-altering faith. That's not fun, is it? There's a difference between incremental growth and transformational growth. Incremental growth is, I've been running on a treadmill. I wanted to lose some weight. I turned 40 last year. I thought, man, I, my, I started later in life with kids, not just by choice, but God's design. And I always thought, I want to be able to at least be in shape, be able to physically play and compete with my kids. And uh, I'd like to prolong their ability to beat me. So... I kind of got really out of shape as just kind of things were hard over the last couple years of my life, but it was time to start getting back to it. So I've been running on a treadmill trying to get in shape. And my boys are constantly, three boys, eight, six, and three, constantly challenging me. Now, in my mind, I had till they were roughly 13. Till they would finally, in some things, be able to take me. I'd always have old man strength. And men, you can always fake a heart attack. Worst case scenario, (laughs) never have to lose again. Just taught you something, didn't I? Now, what happened yesterday, we often go outside our backyard on a beautiful day and we play games, we make them up in our backyard. We have games like this ball game we made up. It's like a hybrid of every ball game you've ever made. And we just play and we run around and and it's easy for me to win. I let them win half the time. I'll keep telling myself that. I figure it sets me up for success later. So when they actually beat me, I was like, oh, just keep letting you win. But yesterday they wanted to run um, wind sprints from one fence to the other in our backyard. We have like a plastic white fence. I don't know how far it is. I'm just guessing maybe 25 yards. I'm just guessing. I don't know. Not real far, not far enough for me to get to full speed, okay? I'm just, you know, just saying. So the first race, um, I lose clearly, but uh, it's not my fault because I don't have any like socks or shoes on. And uh, so anyway, we kind of figured this out, all right? The first race, my youngest three-year-old runs right in front of me and I'm going to tackle him at as full speed as I get. So literally, I had to move out of the way, they beat me. I said, all right, that's not fair. Your brother got in the way. We do it again. And again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. And I finally, I don't even remember how many times, 15, 20 times, I mean, nonstop sprinting with barely a break. We get to the fence, they'd say, okay, ready, set, go. I'm like, ah, I won. Daddy gets a break after winning. All night long, I laid in bed with my legs, my hips, my ankles screaming at me. 
See, this light incremental treadmill work that I've been doing, running three miles and four miles and five miles, hard work, don't get me wrong, not wind sprints, nonstop, over and over. They did beat me once or twice, but I was giving them a really big head start. So anyway, my point is, incremental growth is good, but if you really want to change, it takes radical transformational growth. What my muscles are experiencing today, even as I stand here, what they're experiencing today is me pushing my body, and that's what it takes for us to grow. And your heavenly Father loves you enough to do this in you, which is why, by the way, If you quit on your marriage before God's finished his work, everybody loses, including you. This is why if you don't push through this hard thing that God has placed you in, whether you did it or they did it or he did it, it doesn't matter. The point is, are you going to go through it or are you going to grow through it? See, if you go through it, all you're doing is enduring a hard season. But if you grow through it, you have the chance to become what you've always sought to become. So any trainers in the room who want to offer me their services for free, let me know. Let's pick up in Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. I want to take you back to a story we looked at earlier because I want to show you how God circles back and takes us back through stuff again and again and again in order to grow us. And what I want to do today is I want to teach you on some in-depth things that God has been teaching me and revealing to me and showing to me. And as I show you these things, I really want you to try to take some notes. So if you have our app, you can get all of this in there, not to the detail that I'll be saying it. So you may want to pull out a notepad, your iPad, any pad that you use, cell phone, whatever you got, and grab some of these or go back online because what I want to do is I'm going to come back to this content over and over and over again over the next year or two because I want you to get it into your heart and I want you to begin to process your walk with God and others through these eyes, okay? So here we go, Exodus chapter 17, verse one, excuse me. At the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of Sin. It's not sin, it's pronounced sin. It's a really convenient place they were in, but it really has nothing to do with sin, although it does fit. And moved from place to place. Eventually, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink. So once more, the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet, Moses replied, like any good parent would do. Why are you complaining against me? And why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What should I do with these people? They're ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Walk out in front of the people. Take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Strike this rock and water will come gushing out and the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told and water gushed out as the elders looked on. What a great and amazing moment that would have been, huh? What I want you to see in this moment is number one, is their pain real? You ever been in a desert thirsty without water? It's real. This is not perceived. This is not simply, mom, I wanted the burger, not the chicken nuggets from McDonald's. This is a real thing. And who led them there? God. 
Why did God lead them there? We've been talking throughout the series. Well, number one, he wanted to provide miraculously for them. He wanted them to know you can trust me. But number two, he wanted them to go through a difficult season in order to reveal to them his goodness, his mercy, and his care. See, if we don't understand this about the heart of God, then we miss what we're going through, and then simply we don't grow through it. So there are, I believe, excuse me, five things, five things that God uses to grow us. There are five things we all need to grow. By the way, these are the same five things that every relationship needs to grow. I first learned these from my friend Rick Sudsbury, who may be here with us today. I'm not 100% sure. And uh, later explored them actually with a son named Chad. And I'm bringing these to you from my own vantage point. So using some of what they taught me, some of more of what I've explored in God's word and kind of realized about life. So if anything I say is off from what they say, then um, that's, you know, that's not their problem, it's mine. But I want you to see these five things. I wanna show them to you in the Bible and I want you to begin to read God's word and see life through this lens. Now, here's the thing I really want you to take away. All of you parents and grandparents in the room, all of you who are married and don't have kids yet but want to one day, Everyone who's single and longs one day to be married and have kids. Everybody who's a kid and wants to grow up and one day have kids. Are you with me? Have I missed anybody? There is a small group of single or widows who have no intention of getting married, and God bless you. But these five things apply to every relationship, every friendship, and especially to you parents. And I believe that God has placed you parents in the lives of your children so that you could reveal to your kids who God is. And God does these things in us. And then I want to show them to you in the text. Here we are. Ready? Number one. Number one. Boundaries. Boundaries. Boundaries are simply this. The spoken and unspoken expectations about how we are to live under authority. The spoken and the unspoken expectations about how we're to live under authority. So, there are things that are good, right? And there are things that are evil. How do we know which is which? God tells us. In fact, you could read the entire book of Deuteronomy and it's basically a laundry list of the good and the evil. Now, the thing is, when you look at Deuteronomy, then you look at the New Testament, you get to things like Galatians and it says that we are no longer bound by the law. Do not misunderstand this, okay? The fact that good is good and bad is bad, right is right and wrong is wrong, doesn't mean that just because Jesus fulfilled the law that the law doesn't have a place in our lives. Here's what this means. Jesus, when he died on the cross, after having lived the perfect life that we were not able to live, when he died on the cross and we believe in him, what we get, and this is big, over your head, I know some of you are like, oh, it always makes my eyes roll, but some of you eat this up. In theological terms, it's what we call imputed righteousness, imputed righteousness, meaning no matter how hard I try, I was never righteous enough on my own, so God took the righteousness of Christ, and when I believe in him, he put that righteousness into me. However, there's still right and wrong in the world. Let me ask you a question. <clears throat> is it wrong to go five miles over the speed limit? You're being a legalist, Matt. If the cop didn't care that I drove past, why should I? Now, did you know that the New Testament says that we are to obey the laws of the land? So, is it wrong to go five miles over the speed limit? Some of you still don't want to answer, do you? <laughs> Then I'd have to change something, Pastor. <laughs> okay, maybe five, but not three. <laughs> right is right and wrong is wrong. Why is it wrong to speed? 
Because God has said the leaders, the governors, the senators, the presidents in our country, the kings, even the dictators of foreign countries have been put in their positions by God. That's mind-boggling. But the reason is they will be held accountable for whether they led righteously and with justice or whether they didn't. They will be held accountable. So any rule they put in place that does not go against the rules of God because God, ultimate authority, then there's authorities under him like presidents and governors and senators and then there's rulers under them like judges and police and there's rulers even under that, right, called parents. What? Yes, parents, you are the ruler in your home, amen? Come on now. This is important because you are the one who determines good and bad, right and wrong in your home. You are the one in control or should be. You are the one who establishes the boundaries for the family. Curfew is at this time. This is what we're eating for dinner, period. Here's where we're going on vacation. Now, We'll talk later in September. Really, we, we had a great planning meeting this week about how do we help come alongside parents and what do I need to know at different ages and when do things change? We'll talk about all that in the future. That's not today's message. But I want you to see with God, these things don't change. Now, in the New Testament, we are given a clarification about all of these, and it's this. Paul says you are given one law in the New Testament. Do you know what it is? The law of love. The law of love. It's the one boundary we have. But the entire, it takes the entire New Testament to spell it out. Here's what it means. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And then love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself. If others have a need, what does love require you to do? When you're up against a moral boundary, what does the character of God look like? Here's the thing. Of these five things that I'm about to tell you, this is the one that never changes. The boundary never changes. Are you with me? All right, number two, number two, engagement, engagement. Engagement, I would define as this. What, this is what God does to interact with his children to get their attention. This is what God does to interact with his children to get their attention. Let me give you um, first a parental metaphor and then a biblical metaphor. So parental metaphor. Dads, you've decided the family's gonna eat out for dinner. It's been a long week, mama's tired of stress, and you wanna bless her by taking the family out for dinner. So you look at everybody and say, all right, get your shoes on, go to the bathroom, and get in the car. And your kids decide they don't wanna go out for dinner because they're having fun outside, and they don't wanna come in and put their shoes on and go to the bathroom and get in the car. Does this happen in anybody else's house? Now, you have the authority, right? Because there's a boundary in place. You're the parent. And by the way, you're the father in the home, the husband in the home. So you're the leader of the home. Talk about that in September too. Don't freak out, women. Your job is to care for the family. Now, you can demand and you can yell and you can scream and you can discipline, you can punish, you can do whatever it is you want. Or you can look at your kids and say, I'll bet you I can get my shoes on and get in the car before you. Which one's more engaging? Now, I don't know about you, but I have three little boys in my home. And sometimes I look at them and say, guys, go get your shoes on, go to the bathroom, we're gonna go. And sometimes my kids say, we don't wanna go. I say, that's fine, I'll just beat you. And guess what? It's amazing how many times they get in the car before me. Now, do I have the right and the authority to demand it? Of course I do. But wise parenting says, I'm going to get your attention before I put the boundary in place that's already in place. See, I'm the parent. You are getting in the car. How we get there, that's up for conversation. Now, this is blowing some of your minds. Let me show it to you in scripture, okay? 
So God goes to Joseph. I want you to see the engaging. Joseph is a young man. By the way, he's a prideful, arrogant young man because his daddy has spoiled him. But God has a plan for Joseph's life. And so God comes to Joseph as a young man. He gives him two different dreams. In both dreams, his family bows down to him and worships him. Well, young Joseph doesn't know what to do with this, but he knows one thing he better do with this, tell everybody about it. So he goes to his brothers and lets them know, man, I had this amazing dream last night. You all bowed down to me. You think that went over real well? Anybody got a brother or sister? It didn't go over well in Joseph's family either. But this same Joseph, who we talked about earlier, ends up in a cistern, ends up in prison. The thing that probably held him together through those moments was knowing I had something profound from God. By the way, the fact that he was given a dream by God gave him some unique insight that God does something through dreams. So when he's in prison later and these two guys come in, the baker and the, the cup holder, holder, drinker, he come in and they, um, they're both having dreams Joseph interprets them, not by his own power, by God's power. He knew God had the power to do something, but was Joseph still in prison? Yeah. Now, what if God had just somehow come to Joseph, maybe even through his daddy? What if Jacob had come to him and just said, Joseph, you're special, you're amazing, God's gonna do amazing things for you like you can't understand. Do you think in prison that would have meant much to Joseph? No, because his daddy had already done that. That's why he had technical or dream coat. But God coming to him in an engaging way gave Joseph the character to last. Are you with me? This is huge because um, I believe part of what God was doing was using Joseph's engaging moment to last through. How about this one, Moses? Moses, I'm sending you back to the land you ran away from because you were afraid they would arrest you, kill you, throw you in prison. <clears throat> so I'm sending you back there. And not only am I sending you back to go talk to the lady who raised you, not only am I sending you back to go see your, your, you know, your cousins and your sister, not only am I sending you back to deal with your people, I'm sending you back to go toe-to-toe with the most powerful man on the face of the planet who has a serious God complex, and you're going to tell him, demand him, that he let his people go. Have fun, Moses. Now, could God have done that? What if God had sent Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, and said, Moses, I really think you need to go back. You think Moses is going? No. But what did God do? God showed up in a what? A burning bush. Do you think that was engaging for Moses? Do you think that was a marker moment for him that he could come back to time and time and time again? A moment where he's got his shoes off, kneeling down on holy ground, terrified, talking to a bush that's on fire and not burning up, and always going back maybe in his mind to, something happened that day. I can't explain it, but something happened that day. God is with me. God loves me. How about this one? Number three, how about Peter? Peter. Peter, uh, Jesus comes to Peter, and if you remember the story, when he comes to Peter, Peter's a fisherman. And Jesus gets in his boat and says, hey, let's push out to shore. Peter just came in all night from fishing, and he came up with zilch, zero fish. Jesus pushes out in his boat. And after Jesus kind of does some teaching, he says, hey, Peter, why don't you go ahead and throw your net over the other side of the boat? And Peter's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that'll work great, Jesus. You know, because the fish only like one side of the boat. But Peter, because he's got some inside intel from John the Baptist, decides, why not? What do I got to lose? He throws his net over the sides, and the net is so full of fish, it's going to rip. He can't even bring all the fish in. Something's different about this guy. But then Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Because um, we're going to go do something amazing together. I want you to leave all of this fish, this business you started up behind. Just go ahead and leave it and follow me, because I'm going to make you fishers of men. And we learn that Jesus likes puns as well as engaging moments. Now fast forward to the end of Peter's story in the Gospels. And after Peter sinned, we're sitting at fish moment again, a fish fry. Jesus has prepared for Peter, and he's got some fish there. Is that engaging? You bet it is. And Jesus says, remember, do you love me more than these? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Do you see how God keeps using engagement over and over and over again to get the attention of the people that he loves and wants to use? And it's no different than you or from me. 
When God wants to show up in your life, he'll get your attention and there really won't be a question. I get it. Sometimes things happen. You're like, God, is that you? I don't know what you're doing. And sometimes it takes further prayer and seeking of him, but you'll know, right? I mean, how many times have you heard the voice of God? How many times have some of you sent me an email and said, wow, it's like you were speaking just to me. Well, if you hear God's voice while I'm preaching, you might pay attention because it's not me. He's doing something in you. I'll never forget, when I broke my pelvic bone, everybody, when I was 13, those of you who don't know the story, I was dancing and showing off at a school dance. I did a split, and I split my pelvic bone. Still the reason why my kids could beat me in sprinting. If they do, I'll use it till the day I die. I don't care what you say. But when I did it, everybody around me was explaining in a way I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt God was giving me a limp to humble me. I knew it at 13. I carry that limp like Jacob today, and I still know it today. And it's a constant reminder of God humbling me in my life. Challenges. Challenges. Number three. Challenges are the experiences that are outside of our comfort level that need, emphasis on need, to be accomplished in order for us to grow, gain trust in God, and rely deeper upon him. As we've been talking about, there's a plethora of these in the Exodus story. God makes them hungry, then feeds them with manna. He makes them thirsty, gives them water from a bitter river, and then brings water from a rock. I mean, this happens over and over and over again. Challenges work out many ways. Now, think about parenting for a minute. Challenges work in many, many ways. This is, I have chosen, I'm the parent, the boundary is, here's what you're eating for dinner. You will eat this for dinner. And by the way, if you don't, we'll start over at breakfast time. Now, I know some of you are like, today are like, no, 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 we just, we just give our kids whatever they want. I've been there, done that. You want to raise a tyrant? Keep going. Trust me. Trust me. I remember being a child. How many of you, when you were a kid, your parents did that for you? I remember beets. I hate beets to this day. I don't remember if I hated them the first time, but by the end of the first night, I definitely hated them. I remember my dad saying, you're not leaving this table until you finish that beet. I fell asleep with my face in the beet. Guess what I had for dinner the next night? A beet. I remember this conversation happening more than once. After I fell asleep the first time, I remember the second time faking falling asleep. My parents didn't buy it. They just left me at the table. I woke up with everybody gone. My dad came back up, said, you're going to eat that beet. It'll be there for you in the morning. Finally, mom moved on cleaning other things. I thought I'd wait him out, right? I tried to hide the beet in the trash can. Mom wasn't a fool. Mom goes digging in the trash can. I thought I did a good job of hiding. I didn't like stick it on the top. Mom goes digging in the trash can when I wasn't looking, finds the beat, calls me out. Sure enough, guess what? She went and got out of the refrigerator. Now, you may be going, what is, who cares? It's a beat. This is huge because throughout my life in ministry, it's huge. I learned that I can eat all kinds of things that taste nasty. Because, see, I've done a lot of things called potlucks. Anybody ever done those? <laughs> it's amazing what you can hide in a casserole. I'll never forget, I was at a church in Indiana, and I don't remember where. It wasn't anywhere near here, so it wasn't any of you. I don't think if you, it was you and you remember me. I am so sorry for what I'm about to say. <laughs> somebody made spam sandwiches, and they were wrapped in foil, and I saw somebody else getting them, and I thought they were like mamwich, and I, you know, 20-year-old college student, I could eat about 12 of those. So sure enough, I took one of those. Oh, this sounds great, but I got to take a little bit of everything, right? Because you don't want to offend anybody. And I bit into that thing, and I thought I was going to throw up right there. It was beets all over again. I don't know what this person was thinking, but they were really proud. And when I heard as it came down the table how proud they were, I knew I had to finish that thing. And I was thanking God for beets. <laughs> now, let's talk practical for a minute, all right? Challenges. 
God is going to give you things that are outside of your comfort level. He is. It's going to be a radical job change that requires you to trust him to provide. It's going to be something major in your health. And you're just wondering, God, are you going to heal this or is this going to be the thing that ends my life? God's going to allow your spouse to continue to make the poor choices they're making that you don't know about and then one day reveal it in some crazy, miraculous way and leave you wondering whether or not he's abandoned you or not. See, when we face these challenges of life, they give us opportunity for growth or for death. Don't forget this. Many Israelites died in the desert for lack of faith because the desert has that way of doing it to us. But here's the thing about challenges. My last pastor used to say, if God leads you to it, he'll lead you through it. And that's why we get to this next one, nurture nurture. Nurture is God providing for our needs, physically, spiritually, and emotionally, especially to accomplish the challenges of life. God providing for our needs, emotionally, spiritually, physically, to accomplish the challenges in our life. Our main problem with the challenges that God allows into our life is that we are terribly afraid of everything except him. Fear is a funny thing in the Bible. As I talked, I think it was last week and the week before, we are not to be afraid of the Lord, but we are to start with the fear of the Lord. See, our fear of God is not to keep us out of his presence. Our fear of him is to cause deep and profound respect and awe of his power and his might and his majesty. And when we do that, then we have nothing else to be afraid of because we realize everything else pales in comparison to him. So then we draw into his presence, not for fear of punishment, but because we trust his loving arms. But when we are afraid, hear this, for whatever you're going through today or one day, when we are afraid, we make poor decisions. When our fear is misplaced, it's not on him, it's on something or someone else. And what will happen if this doesn't work out or come through, then we react poorly. Here's a few examples. When we're afraid that God won't show up, then we have to always be in control. You ever meet a control freak? If you haven't met one, you might be them. Because you always have to be in control. You haven't met somebody else who's in control. There's a terrifying statement. It's like, if you don't know the black sheep in the family, moving on. So... When you're afraid that God won't work things out, then you better take matters into your own hands, see? Number two, when you're afraid that God won't provide, do you know what that makes you? Stingy and greedy. I can't be generous. I can't give to my church. I can't give to other ministries or help other people. I can't release this thing because if I do, how will we See, it's you being in control again. You don't trust that God actually says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and I'll take care of all those other things. How about this one? When you think or fear that God might forget about you, like, you know, he's really busy running the entire universe and all, then what you do is you start complaining to him And you start reminding everybody else about your struggles instead of just finding a closet and getting on your knees and praying. We see the Israelites doing that a lot. How about this? When you're afraid that God's going to leave you high and dry, then what you do is you start to take care of yourself because you can't trust God to take care of you. Think about this. This is where addictions come from. 
I don't trust God to work things out in my job, so I go home every day after work and I drink on my way home. How about this one? I don't trust God to work things out, even if it takes weeks or months or years with my spouse, so I better take matters into my own hands. I'm just gonna cheat on her. I'm gonna go get my needs met somewhere else, maybe in a computer screen. How about this? I'm stressed out, I'm anxious, I don't know how this is gonna work out, so I closet food, eat, and I just keep shoving junk food into my face because I don't turn to the water of life to fill me up and give me what I need. You could insert here gossip, rumors, spending, shopaholicism, I don't even know what that word is. Name it. You're ultimately afraid that God won't meet your needs, so you go meet it and fill the gap with something else. But what if? What if God actually intended to encourage you to keep going when you want to quit? What if God actually intended to give you the affection you needed when your soul was thirsty and hungry? What if God actually intended to comfort you when you were grieving deeply a loss? What if you actually just trusted him? See, when God takes you to a challenge, he's never just going to leave you there. Now, think about this, by the way, as a parent for a minute. Bad parenting puts challenges in front of your kids that they cannot accomplish. Good parenting creates challenges, discomfort where it needs to be. How about this one? Jesus talking to the disciples and he says, I want you to forgive when people sin against you. And Peter, the same guy with the fish, looks at him and says, how many times, Lord? Like seven seems like a good number, right? Jesus says, no, not seven, 70 times. Or it's possible, depending because there's some Greek kind of confusion there, 70 times seven. And I believe what he's doing, and this is like really big and over some of your heads, I know, just stick with me. I believe what he's doing is he's going back to this Daniel prophecy, the Daniel 70 weeks prophecy, 70 times seven, 70 weeks, 490 years. And at the end of that, the Messiah will come and it will be this perfect fulfillment of all that we've longed for. Forgiveness and healing will come. I think Jesus is looking at Peter and says, you know exactly about that. What I'm telling you is forgive completely, Peter. It doesn't matter if they come to you seven times in the same day. For the same thing, you forgive them. And Peter's like, how can I do that? Increase my faith. Of course. That's a challenge too hard to meet, isn't it? Yes. But God's not just going to throw you to the wolves. He's going to walk with you through every step. Great parenting gives your kids challenges, then does whatever's necessary to help them meet the challenge. Are you with me? What we do in our kids when we don't do that is we create anxious and stressed out little kids as we bark and demand orders. The boundary, you're the parent. I've created the challenge. You gotta meet it. But see, the only one of these things that doesn't change is the first one. I'm always the parent and I'm always in charge and I'm always in control and I'm always gonna protect you, love you, nurture you, engage you. I'm always gonna do these things for you. But you are gonna meet this challenge even if it requires me walking through it with you. That's why Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. So that the writer of Hebrews could look at you and say, he experienced every sin and temptation that you experienced. So you could turn to him in your time of need because he understands. Are you starting to see the pictures yet? Last one, and I'm gonna go over today, so sorry. You can make up for it on Memorial Day. All right, playfulness, playfulness. This is the fun and interactive parts of our walk with God. These are the moments where we truly feel the joy of the Lord is our strength. 
I, I heard this great quote. I couldn't find it. I looked for it again, but I found this great quote a couple weeks ago. And it said, it was something to the effect of, have you ever noticed how God has hidden so many cool things in his creation? Did you know that there are bugs and forests that we've never found yet? And some of you are like, that's not cool. That's because you don't have three little boys. I'm telling you, I walk in my backyard and there's always something crawling on them. I'm like, ah! okay, okay, calm down. Can we smash it? No, you want to keep it? Oh, you want to bring it inside as a pet? Okay, um, how about on the deck? Good enough? All right. There are literally sunrises, sunsets that will blow you away. There are these moments in life where you so profoundly see the hand of God. Have you ever had this happen? If you haven't, just wait. It may happen for you yet one day. Have you ever gone to the mail or pulled up your email and you got a letter and you opened it up and it was an encouraging note and it came at the exact moment of the day when you were feeling so depressed, so sad, so hurt. And then you started thinking about the math. In order for this to have arrived at this day, at this moment, that means my friend had to have been moved by God at least five days ago, sat down, wrote the letter, put it in the mail, and for it to show up at this exact moment. That means five days ago, God, you knew exactly what I was going to be dealing with. And you moved five days ago in this person to make this happen. Thank you, God. The joy of the Lord is my strength. This is also, by the way, why it's really important that you respond to the promptings of the Lord because who knows who God is intending to encourage through you. My friend Rick Sudsbury says this, playfulness fosters vulnerability. Vulnerability fosters innocence, and innocence fosters cooperation and relationships. We lose out on playfulness all the time in our homes because we hand kids an iPad or a TV screen and we tell them to stay distracted while we go about our lives, exercising and cleaning and doing our own things. And consequently, the family, the home is breaking down today because we don't know how to interact with each other. We don't interact with each other. And so we're raising an entire generation who thinks social media is the way to engage people. I hope God's convicting some of you. I'm going to do a one-two skip a few. I'll jump. I'll skip a great passage. You have the outline. Um, highly recommend you read that passage. Just a great passage about the joy of the Lord. But let's come back now. Let's see how these things apply. Let's open up a text. Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. And just look at these five things. Do we see them? What do they mean? What do we do with them? Numbers 20. Numbers 20. All right, here it says, verse two, there was no water for the people to drink at that place, so they rebelled against Moses and Aaron. Wait a minute. This is Exodus 17, part two. We are roughly 38 years in the future. We are looking at the exact same scenario. Did they learn the lesson of the desert? Which is scary because they are right on the brink of the promised land. Verse three, the people blamed Moses. Sounds exactly the same. And they said, if only we had died in the Lord's presence with our brothers. Why have you brought the congregation of the Lord's people into this wilderness to die along with all our livestock? Why did you make us leave Egypt to bring us here to this terrible place? The land has no grain, no figs, no grapes, no pomegranates, and no water to drink. Where is the McDonald's here, Moses? We can't eat spaghetti. Now, They're thirsty. Is it a real problem? Yes. Let's just see. Do we see these five things present? Number one, boundary. God is God. Go read the Ten Commandments. The first three are God is God. Worship him alone. Keep his name holy. Keep his day holy. I think that's the first four. God wants the Israelites to trust him. That boundary's never gonna change. He alone is God. He alone is gonna provide for them. He wants to be their one source of strength and hope. Number two, challenge. 
Let them be thirsty. Deuteronomy 8 told us that God did all of these things to test them, to see where their hearts really were. Here's a challenge. Now in your need, will you cry out to me or will you complain? Did they pass the challenge? Number three, engagement. I want you to see this. I haven't read it to you yet, so it's not your fault you didn't see it. Notice in verse six, which I'm about to read, Moses and Aaron leave the people and go to God in prayer. Yes, two people figured this out. They get on their knees and God shows up and it says God's glorious presence arrived. Interesting. Do you remember when Moses is up on Mount Sinai and he says, God, can I see you? God says, you can't handle it. You can't handle the truth. You would die. So what I'll do is I'll put you in a cleft of the rock. I'll cover you and my glory will pass by. I don't think it's an accident. In Numbers 20, we're told that the glorious presence of the Lord showed up. I don't even know what it means. But do you think that was engaging? I'm gonna guess that was a little bit mind-boggling. Look at this now. Numbers chapter 20, verse six. Moses and Aaron turned away from the people, went up to the entrance of the tabernacle where they fell face down on the ground. Then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, you and Aaron must take the staff and assemble the entire community. And I want you to beat them over the head and tell them what losers they are. Is that what he says? As the people watch, speak to the rock over there and it will pour out its water. Sound like nurture? They're thirsty, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give them water. But does it also sound a little bit like playfulness? Could you imagine this moment, Moses walking up? All the people have gathered. You guys are thirsty, I get it. The good news is, I've talked to the Lord. Watch this, come on water, bring it. All the people would have been dancing and clapping and singing going, our God loves us, he meets our needs. Look at this, he says, you will provide enough water from the rock to satisfy the whole community and their livestock. So, jump down to verse nine. So Moses did as he was told, kind of. He took the staff from the place where it was kept before the Lord. Then he and Aaron summoned the people to come and gather at the rock. Listen, you rebels, he shouted. Now, did that sound like the merciful response God gave to Moses? Must we bring you water from this rock? Moses is roughly 120 years old at this point. He is officially a grumpy old man. And you can't blame the dude. Like, he's Clint Eastwood here. I mean, you can't blame. Some of you don't know who that is. You can't blame the dude. He's been stuck in a desert for the last 40 years of his life. But, verse 11, then Moses raised his hand and he struck the rock twice with the staff and water gushed out so the entire community and their livestock drank their fill. I believe, guys, we missed the playfulness of God for two reasons. Number one, Israel wouldn't stop complaining. And number two, Moses didn't either. What a beautiful, playful moment this would have been of God showing off again in the lives of Israel and in Moses and in Aaron if only they would have stayed focused on the God who cares. But instead, Moses took matter into his own hands. And I want you to see this, verse 12 but the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you will not lead them into the land I am giving them. Don't miss this. Later in Numbers 12, Aaron dies because of this. Moses cannot go into the promised land. 40 years you've been ministering to them, leading them, shepherding them, loving them, and in one moment, Moses, this is all stripped away from you. Why? 
Because you went to the rock and you didn't call forth. You didn't give grace. Instead, you yelled at them. You shamed them. You rebuked them. These are my people. I love them. And remember, everything in the book of Exodus is intended to point us to God. Here's what Dr. Robert Peterson says. And I got a typo in here, so I'll read it the right way. What is it that God wants to teach both Moses and his people? It is the same thing he wants to teach us all. Amazing grace. Consider this question. If grace is at the heart of our faith, then what is the most mature way we can show it? Scripture would answer with one word, one word, gratitude. The word gratitude comes from the Latin word gratia or grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Gratitude is being thankful for it. We see grace in the text, but we don't see gratitude. Let me just offer you this little tattoo for you in the future, all right? Grace plus gratitude equals growth. God has an endless supply of grace. Will our hearts turn to him in appreciation for all that he's done? Now, I'm literally down to the last two or three things that I want to say, and it will be very quick, but I need you to understand what's going on in the text because this is your biggest takeaway. All that stuff I taught you about those five things, I'm just gonna keep coming back and watering that seed I just planted in you because it's gonna change the way you parent. It's gonna change the way you see God. This is your major takeaway. Why was it wrong for Moses to strike the rock? That's what he did in Exodus 17. He's just going back to what he's always known. Well, number one, it was always about faithfulness and obedience to God, the same as it is for us. God requires obedience. It's not up for grabs because of grace. God expects you to obey him. It's a boundary that is fixed and will not change. Now, he'll lead you through it. He may modify how you get there, but he expects you to get there. Think of Moses complaining. I don't have the right words. I don't speak good. Fine, I'll send Aaron with you, but you're still going. That's not gonna change. You're still going. Now, I want you to, to come back because what's going on here points us directly to Jesus. We are told that when Jesus is crucified, hanging on a cross, that a Roman soldier comes up, believes that he's dead, and sticks a spear, a staff, a piece of wood in his side. Do you know that one of the major metaphors for Christ in the New Testament is that he is our rock, our cornerstone? I'm not making this up. The New Testament writers tell us clearly the rock in the Old Testament was to point us to the rock of Christ. So in Exodus 17, when Moses struck the rock and the water flowed, it's to point to Christ on the cross whose side was pierced and blood flowed because there's always a connection between blood and water just like there is in baptism. Now, don't miss this. This is huge because what happened in Numbers 20 is Moses struck the rock again. How many times did Christ die? Once for all your sins past, present, future. The rock didn't need to be struck again. Just like Jesus doesn't have to die again, he has enough grace for you today. Dr. Peter says it this way, the rock never needs to be struck again. Once. For you. Moses showed up in shame and in judgment to yell at the Israelites instead of just being obedient. Imagine if he had called forth water, which again, we read a revelation. This water, the water that represents Christ, will quench our thirst. That anybody who comes and drinks will never be thirsty again. Do you see how all these things connect? 
So I ask you this question again. Have we learned the lessons of the desert? Are we ready to enter the promised land? Perhaps, perhaps the clearest way to know if you've learned the lesson of the desert is this. Am I trusting in grace and am I thankful for it? What we want to do right now is give you the perfect opportunity to do just that. You'll see all over this room, communion table set up and offering table set up. What we're going to do is enter into a time of worship and gratitude. And as you go to these tables to take communion, I just simply want you to go to the tables. If you want to kneel at the front of the stage, if you want to go back to your seat, I don't care how you do it. But I want you to take this time, and we'll give you plenty of time, take this time to engage with God. And just say, God, I need grace over these things, and then lay those things at the cross. And then thank you, God, for giving me grace over those things. Or maybe God's already shown you grace and you're just saying, God, thank you. Thank you for the grace that you have given me. I'll start a prayer and then I'll hand it to you. Father in heaven, we thank you for grace. Without it, without Jesus dying on the cross, without his side being pierced and blood flowing and water flowing, we would, we would have no hope. God, help us not to be like the Israelites. Help us not to be like Aaron. Help us not to be like Moses. Moses is a phenomenal example for us to look to, but God, we want to go beyond Moses. We want to become like Christ. So God, transform us, even if it hurts. Transform us that we might become just like him. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.